Okay, this is from Judges chapter 3, verses 7 to 21. This is what God says. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord, their God, and served the Baals and the Asherahs. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel, so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan, Rishathaim, king of Aram, Naharaim, to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. But when they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer, Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, who saved them. The spirit of the Lord came upon him, so that he became Israel's judge and went to war. The Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Aram, into the hands of Othniel, who overpowered him. So the land had peace for 40 years, till Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. Once again, the Israelites, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Getting the Ammonites and Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Jerah the Benjamite. The Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Ehud had made a double-edged sword about a foot, long, about a foot and a half long, which he strapped to his right thigh under, under his clothing. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. After Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent on, on their way the men who had carried it. At the idols near Gilgal, he himself turned back and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. The king said, Quiet, and all his attendants left him. Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his summer palace and said, I have a message from God for you. As the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, threw the sword from his right thigh and plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade, which came out his back. Ehud did not, put the sword, did not pull the sword out, and the fat closed in over it. Then Ehud went out to the porch. He shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. After he had gone, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. They said, he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the house. They waited to the point of embarrassment. But when he did not open the doors of the room, they took a key and unlocked them. There they saw their Lord fallen to the floor, dead. While they waited, Ehud got away. He passed by the idols and escaped to Syrah. When he arrived there, he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went down with him from the hills, with him leading, leading them. Follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given Moab, your enemy, into your hands. So they followed him down, taking possessions of the fords of the Jordan that led to Moab. They allowed no one to cross over. At that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous and strong. Not a man escaped. That day, Moab was made subject to Israel, and the land had peace for 80 years. After Ehud came Shemgar, son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad. He too saved Israel. Let's pray together, shall we? Our Heavenly Father, we do pray that over the next few weeks we would maintain and keep up being personal and also prayerful. 
Father, we pray that today as we learn more about you, as we come to face to face with you once again, that we would learn that you're a God who is so powerful and awesomely mighty that we can pray to you and trust you because you are the great and almighty God. Father, we pray this because we want to know you better through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, I'm convinced that there's a phase in every child's life that uh, likes putting on underpants over their heads. Uh, I'm sure Andrew has experienced this. Uh, kids, little kids that just come in. I remember Anastasia coming into our bedroom and finding underpants on the floor and somehow it just ends up being over their head. Uh, Verity's in this stage at the moment and uh, you see there a lovely photo of my dear uh, one and a half year old daughter Verity. Uh, this is about the third attempt now. Um, Sharon actually took this picture. She's uh, before this, and put her underpants over her head, and then through her arms, and through one leg, through the other leg, and out over her tracky dacks and over her uh, nappies as well. But it's a great picture. I think it's one of those pictures that I'm going to show at her 21st. Uh, <laughs> it's a super girl look. My own super girl. Uh, my own superhero. Uh, we love our superheroes, I think. Uh, we love them. At least uh, Hollywood does. Uh, we've got so many movies about our super superheroes, Superman, Batman, Spider-Man, Iron Man, the Fantastic Four, you know, it goes on. Captain America, Thor, the Incredible Hulk, Wonder Woman, the X-Men, Bob the Builder, right? All sorts, of, <laughs> all sorts of superheroes that see a problem and they can fix it. Uh, it's incredible. There's so many problems in the world and yet they cry out for superheroes and the superhero comes and they fix it. And I guess in some ways, as we read this section of the Book of Judges this week, it's almost like a parade of superheroes, a parade of, of people who come and fix the problems. But one of the things that we're going to see today, it's better than any superhero that we've ever met before. So what, once again, the thing that we need to do is to remind ourselves of the story so far. Uh, last week we learnt that this is the beginning, of, or this is part of the story of the reversal of the fall, reversal of those dark days that started many, many years ago. Uh, God had made three promises to Abraham, and you remember the word love, land, offspring, and blessing. That's what he promised Abraham, that he's going to have this incredible land, that his descendants are going to be numerous, and he's going to be blessed, and through him all the nations are going to be blessed. And Judges is at the stage when Israel has entered the land that was promised. And what's more, last week we learnt that when we looked at the first couple of chapters of the book of Judges, it's a summary of the previous book, but it's also a preview of the things that are going to happen in this book. And that it actually shows us of a recurring cycle that happens over and over again. See, last week we saw the cycle. Israel sins, uh, there's punishment, God actually hands them over to Israel's enemies. Then they cry out for help, and God raises up a, a judge to actually save them. God raises up his saviour to save them. But then they sin again, and the whole cycle starts all over again. It goes round and round in circles. That's a recurring pattern. That's all the way through this book. But what we're going to find this week is, rather than it being a continuous circle, it's actually a spiral. It's like a tornado that sucks itself down, as you see there in your, in your outline. And so this week, we're dealing with the middle section of the book. We're going to look at the pattern that's going to be filled out with specific details. Now, you know, once again, we're doing 13 chapters, so there's no way we're going to cover every detail. But one of the things is, you're going to see that cycle keep turning over. But now we're getting the details added in about the particular characters, about the particular incidents, about the particular situations. And once again, a great thing to do as you read a book is also to know a little bit about its structure. And the details that we're given in, in this middle section of the book actually comes in six episodes, six sections, six subsections. 
And you can actually tell when there's a new section, when there's a new unit, because it starts with that wonderful phrase, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So you can look in your Bible with me. Uh, I've asked you to bring your Bibles this week, and that would be really helpful. But just have a little flick, and you can actually see those sections. And you'll notice in chapter 3, verse 7, that whole section that deals with Othniel, chapter 3, verse 7, it starts off with that phrase, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, chapter 3, verse 7. Uh, you're there on the same page? Just scan down a little bit on the page and verse 12, the section that starts off, the judge equal. Once again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. That's verse 12. Chapter 3, verse 7, Othniel, the Israelites did evil in the Lord. Verse 12, about Ehud, once again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. That's the next unit. Turn over the page. Right? There's another section, chapter 4, verse 1, about the judge Deborah. After Ehud died, the Israelites once again did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Skip over a couple more pages. Chapter 6, verse 1, the judge Gideon. Once again, there's another marker. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Uh, chapter 10, verse 6, flip over a few more pages. You get that again. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And then the last one, as you turn over two more pages, chapter 13, verse 1, about Samson. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. There's a phrase that marks the different subsections of this little bit of the Bible. As we look at this middle section of the Bible, here's six sections that's marked off by that phrase. Six episodes occur in this middle part of the book, uh, and each bit, there's going to be one main judge that's going to be talked about. Although now and then, you actually get another little judge that's thrown in. And so in our reading today, in verse 31 of chapter 3, you get that one verse about Shamgar, who actually kills 600 Philistines. Okay? So you get where we are. We've done the intro last week. This week, we're in the middle section. The middle section is six episodes about six main judge, and it deals with this basic cycle. Israel sins, God punishes them, they cry out for help, and you see that cycle go on and on. But within that basic um, cycle, I think, it, it actually pays to pay attention to the unusual details. Uh, I don't know whether you're old enough to remember uh, the movie Schindler's List. This black and white movie. And yet, there's one character in the middle of it, this little girl in the pink dress. And, and in all the black and white, your eyes just focus on this one girl. Or that first Matrix movie, in that scene where everything's black and white, and there's a woman in red who turns around, and that's where your eye focuses on. And in some senses, we're going to see this cycle go over and over again, turn round and round like a washing machine. But what I want you to do is look for some of the differences, some of the things that develop as the story develops. So, we're going to meet Othniel, the first judge, chapter 3, verses 7 to 11. And I think in Othniel, we get the classic stereotype judge. Uh, he's great because he follows the pattern exactly. Othniel is sort of like the white knight of the judges, really. Uh, he's simple, he's uncomplicated, just like me. Uh, there are no surprises. It all happens exactly as you would expect. Right? Uh, Israel cries out for help. God immediately responds with a saviour who immediately crushes his enemies, their enemies. Othniel is the first judge mentioned, and he's the most uncomplicated judge. Uh, he's squeaky clean. There's nothing unusual about him. And because of that, Othniel's actually going to set up a precedent uh, for, for the rest of the judges to compare. This is the, the, the cycle. And last week we learned a couple of things about the cycle. That God is incredibly serious about sin. I hope you remember that. But also, secondly, that God is incredibly mercy, merciful. That he shows his mercy despite all the rebellion of the people. But it's going to be the next few judges that this uncomplicated pattern is well and truly broken. And you're still going to get the same sequence of events. 
Israel sins, God saves, saves them. But now there's going to be some very unusual variations. So let's go on to meet Igwe. It's an amazing person. Uh, but unlike the heroic Othniel, who actually comes face to face with his enemies and, and meets them, now we get this second judge. He's actually a sneaky little left-hander. It's amazing. And he kills this obese, fat enemy. It's just an amazing story. Uh, I, I don't know whether you were chuckling inside as you read the story, but you should have. Sometimes I think we're so serious about the Bible that we actually miss the humour in the scripture in the scriptures. And I think it's very satirical and it's actually very comical. See, the evil king Eglon, you know, the powerful king Eglon, is depictable as a laughable, grotesque figure. This fat blob who just bobbles about. <laughs> and, and you're right to laugh because you're, you're, you're supposed to smirk at, at how slow he is and how easily he's fooled. See, he's actually tricked, isn't he? You remember the story. We just read it. See, it's usual practice that um, when a person approaches the king, he would actually reveal the left side of, of his body to make sure that there's actually no, no sword tied to his leg. So as you approach, you show the left hand, left hand side, you got no sword because most people are right-handed. But what we have here is Ehud, who's a sneaky left-hander. And so he shows his left side, there's, there's nothing there, but then, as he approaches the king, he shows his right-hand side, and out comes the sword. <laughs> um, and when he gets close... Sorry, right. I've always wanted to do that to a teacher, but hey. <laughs> and in all this, we laugh, because we approach Elon, who's being poked fun at. Especially when you get to verse 24 and 25. Because Ehud makes good his escape. When? Well, because his servants think that he's sitting on a can, right? He's, he, he's on the toilet. And they're standing outside, whistling away, you know, la di da di da when's he going to be finished? And he gets so embarrassed that they actually run in. And by that time, Yuhud has actually made good his escape. And the whole thing comes over as, as, as written to make fun of this grotesque king, Eglon. And it's holding him up to ridicule. That's the story. But do you notice there that when we started the reading, there's actually no hint of ridicule. Absolutely no hint of ridicule in the first few verses. Look back with me to verse 13. Getting the Ammonites and Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. I guess most of you aren't much more older than 18 years. Some of you probably haven't even turned 18 yet. But can you imagine all your life that the place that you live in is not your own place, but it's been subjected by a more powerful enemy? This Eglon isn't a fool. He's a horrible, horrible despot ruler. And he's a clever politician. He actually holds a coalition of these warring parties the Ammonites, uh, Ammonites and the Amalekites together. And he plots this cunning political plan to get all these parties together to conquer Israel and to subjugate Israel. No, he's not just a fool to be laughed at. He's a powerful king. But you know what happens though? Sure, the guy's no slouch. But you look and then 18 years later, the moment God raises up a judge, when the judge enters the scene, he turns out to be this laughable figure. 
someone who's actually hard to take seriously. And the lesson here isn't that, you know, Eglon is some blundering idiot, that he's a fool. But I think what we learn here is that Eglon, no matter how powerful he is, is actually no match for a saviour that's raised up by God. No matter how impressive he seems to be, no matter how powerful someone wants to be or seems to be, it's laughable. It's laughable that they can even think themselves to be a match for God. God has no rivals. When you come up against God, there's no competition. It's over before it starts. No one can match it with God. And you actually see that in the little verse about Shamgar within this unit. It's in the unit because it says exactly the same thing. Shamgar kills 600 trained soldiers, 600 Philistines, with an ox goat. You actually have to ask people what an ox goat is. Because an ox goat is a cattle prop. You know, a big long stick with a nail through it. A guy who uses a cattle prod to defeat an army of 600. It's one of those die-hard movies, you know, when Mel Gibson <laughs> shoots hundreds and hundreds of people. And yet what it's saying here is that God's control over his enemy is so complete, so absolute, that he can bring about victory through the most unexpected things. His enemies are laughable in his sight. I can remember when I was little playing uh, table tennis against my uncle. My uncle actually was the table tennis champion here at this university in 1960-something or other. Canis Quine, I think you can still read it up there on, on some board that's sort of hidden in the bottom of some cupboard somewhere. But um, he used to be horrible, right? He used to say, how old are you? And I'd say, seven. And he'd give me a seven-point head start and thrash me, right? So I didn't get any points. And I still remember one day lying and saying, no, I'm 20 years old, right? And I still lost. <laughs> but it, it was like that. You know, it, it's, it's almost like that. With God's enemies coming against God, it's, it's hopeless. It's a hopeless cause even before it starts. But we read the same theme as we go to the next episode, to the next unit, when we read the story of Deborah and Barak. Again, the enemies of God are crushed. And they crush with an unexpected weapon in a way that's so easy that it's actually laughable. And this time it isn't Eglon, it's Sisera, uh, who according to chapter 4, verse 3, actually oppresses Israel for 10 years. And yet the guy is such a threat to God, he's such a horrible threat to God, that he's killed with a tent peg through his head while he's hiding under his bed. It's pathetic. No competition. This guy's quivering away. But yet, with this incident, you actually find another surprise. It's this, these stories are just full of twists and turns. Because as well as God's enemies being removed of these, this time with a tent peg, what we actually find is not just an unexpected weapon that's being used. Now we get another part of the story that grows, and it's an unexpected identity of the Saviour. Because what we get this time, this time round, isn't just an unexpected weapon, it's an unexpected saviour. This time, it's a woman. And that's remarkable. Remember, this is the time when women cooked, women stayed at home, women cleaned. And men are the ones who went out to kill. That's the way it was. That's the way it is. And the fact that a woman now is God's saviour. We'll have a look at verse 9 of chapter 4. Very well, Deborah said, I will go with you. But because of the way you are going about this, the honour will not be yours, for the Lord would hand Sisera over to a woman. 
See, even Deborah here is surprised. Even Deborah sees this as unusual. But as we're thinking about twists, there's another twist to come. Because when you first read those verses in verses 9 to 10, you're thinking that this woman must be Deborah. That's who's going to do it. But it's not even Deborah that's even talked about. It's not even her. What we find, the person who actually does this, is a woman called Jael, the wife of Heba. And if you're asking the question, who the heck is she? You're asking the right question. She's a nobody. She's not a queen. She's not a prophetess. She's not a priest. She's a nobody. She's Jael, the wife of Heba. That's all you ever know about her. And God uses her, a nobody, to kill a tyrant who's actually oppressed Israel for 10 years. We're being shown a very important thing about God here. God conquers his people with ease. We've seen that. And, and God sees this as so easy. But he's not just, just doesn't use unexpected objects. He actually uses unexpected people to defeat his enemies as well. But we're going to turn over the page and we're going to look at another judge. Because when we look at Gideon, uh, these things we actually see again and even further. Because the lesson of Gideon is that because God is in so much control, because God is the one who gives victory, then he's the one who actually deserves the credit. You see, for those of you who actually read the story during the week, uh, all praises to you, brownie points and all, I don't have any gifts, but hey, it's good on you. Uh, you actually notice a really unusual thing here. That the story is really long and really drawn out. See, the time uh, between Gideon being chosen as a judge and the time that Gideon actually defeats the Midianites, it's a really long time. I think there's well over 50 verses, you know, over a chapter, that that actually happens. And you remember Othniel, it was so quick. The people cry out for help, Othniel comes, Othniel defeats the enemy. Bang, 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 one after the other. And yet here, it's such a long time. And through that long extended time, the fact that's being driven home in this episode is that Gideon is not the one who's going to achieve the victory. It's not Gideon. And therefore, it's not Gideon who's going to get the praise. It's making crystal clear here that God's the one who deserves the credit. See, because Gideon himself actually comes out as, across this quite a wimp. He's a real quivering wimp. He's not just, you know, some strong guy in a wimpish disguise either. He's not a Clark Kent or a Peter Parker. He is a wimp. Now, he's not the sort of person that would foster a lot of confidence from you. See, when you first meet him at the opening of chapter 6, he's threshing his wheat. He's, he's doing stuff with the wheat. Where? In a wine press. That's a great big bucket that he actually sits himself in so that he's doing his wheat threshing. He's hiding. He's hiding from the medium nuts. And you've got to know here that you're actually not dealing with the bravest person in Israel here. And right from the start, Gideon starts complaining about how God has actually made a mistake. So you read in verse 15 of chapter 6, come there with me. But Lord, Gideon asks, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my family. He's not too convinced about this judge stuff. And so he keeps on asking for all these reassurances. He asks for signs and wonders, and God gives him some. God gives him, you know, the, the celestial barbecue. He sticks bread and milk on the altar and it bursts into flames of its own. And you think, wow, that, that would convince him. That's pretty impressive. And yet he's still nervous. And he wants more signs. And so you remember the story about the fleeces. And first it was wet and then it was dry and all that sort of stuff. 
You can, you can tell that this guy's worried. Am I the one? Am I, am I really the one? And God all the time says, don't worry. It's not about you. It's about me. I'm going to get the victory for you. Give me the credit. And to reinforce that, you get that remarkable statement, I think, in chapter 2, in the next chapter, in chapter 7. The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many men for me to deliver Midian into their hands. In order that Israel may not boast against me, that her own strength has saved her, announce now to the people, anyone who trembles with, with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gideon. And what happens is that you see this army of 32,000 men reduced to 300. And in all this, it's to show God who's the one who's to achieve victory. You can imagine Gideon quaking. He had an army of 32,000. And then he faces the powerful Midianite army with 300 people. 300. And, and even just before the battle, Gideon overhears a discussion between a, a couple of Midianite soldiers, two enemy soldiers. And one has a bad dream, and the other one interprets. And down verse 13, you read about it. Gideon arrived just as a man was telling a friend his dream. I had a dream, you were saying. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. His friend responded, This can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. Even the enemies knew that this is God's work. Even the enemies knew that God is active and he's given the Midianites to Gideon and his arm. Over and over again, God is the one who will bring salvation. Over and over again, God is the one who's going to defeat the Midianites. Over and over again, it's God who's going to rescue the people from the enemies. And he's saying, Gideon, don't worry about this. I'm going to do this. Give me the credit. And you know what the ridiculous thing about this story is? Probably some of the saddest words in the Bible. As you skip across to uh, chapter 8, verse 22. The Israelites said to Gideon, Rule over us, you, your son and your grandson, because you have saved us out of the hand of Midian. And that really would have been one of the most stupid things to say. One of the dumbest statements in the whole Bible. After all these signs, after all the things that God has done, after what God has shown them, after what God has done to give them victory, they turn up at Gideon's doorstep and they give him the credit. Now, admittedly, Gideon refuses at first, but it's pretty weak. It's sort of like at Chinese restaurants when, you, when someone asks you, you know, do you want any more? And you say no, and they ask you again, do you want any more? And about the third time they ask you again, you go, okay, I'll eat more. It's sort of like that. Gideon refuses for a little bit. But then he turns around and, and, and he gets the Israelites to make an ephod for him. Which then actually becomes a thing that Israel starts to rely on. In verse 27 we read, Gideon made the gold into an ephod, which he placed in Ophrah, his town. All Israel prostituted themselves by worshipping it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and his family. And you read more of the story in chapter 9. goes on to describe Abimelech, who was uh, Gideon's nephew. And he tries to cash in on Gideon's success. And the results are disastrous. There's a civil war, there are mass murders. And if you haven't read it, please read it. It's a great story. But it's there to show what a mess Israel gets themselves into when they forget that it's God who saves them. When they forget that God is in control. 
Wouldn't that forget to give God the credit? When they actually start giving credit to other people like Gideon. And so the story of Gideon is clear. God does it, so you make sure that you give God the credit. And we come to the story of Jephthah, and we don't have much time to deal with Jephthah. Let me say that there are three scenes, uh, three scenes in the story of Jephthah. Je uh, Jephthah makes a, um, uh, uh, the, the people of Israel try to make a deal with God. Uh, the people of Israel try to make a deal with Jephthah, and then Jephthah tries to make a deal with God. And all this, what you learn is that you can't make deals with God. Not like Israel and Jephthah. Israel and Jephthah, Jephthah knew the political maneuvers. Israel knew about selfish ambition. God knows none of that. God doesn't make deals. God is not twisted by his arms by some of the deals of the Israelites. No, no, God acts out of his compassion. He acts out of his love, out of his character. And so we come to our last judge, Samson. And if you've read the story of Samson, I think sometimes when you read it, you think, I've actually read this before. Now, some of you have because, you know, you grew up in Sunday schools and all that sort of stuff. But I think even if you've never read Samson before, as you read it, you keep on just hearing little stories that you've heard before, little tunes that you've heard in a different key, little symphonies, little notes that you've just heard, little themes that you think, wow, it's coming through again. See, for example, Samson uses 300 torches to destroy the Philistines. And earlier on in the book, Gideon actually uses 300 torches in defeating the Midianites. And in another chapter, Samson kills 100 Philistines with a jawbone and an ass. And you remember that Shamgar kills 600 Philistines with an ox goat. And you remember little, they're just interesting little repetitions of certain words all the way through. And it goes on. And there's lots of little things that happen to Samson. That reminds us of the things that happened already in the book. Because I think what the author's trying to do here is to sum up the whole book in Samson. That all the things that you saw in the other judges, you actually see in the person of Samson. I think that's how the story works. And it's not just that he's the last judge. He's actually the high point. He's a summary of all the other judges. We've just seen in Jephthah that God saves people because he feels like it, not because he's forced to. And that's the same thing that we read in the story of Samson. In fact, in the story of Samson, remember we talked about not just a cycle, but a spiral down. Israel gets so far gone, is so far gone in this sin, that they don't even bother calling out to God for help. That's how far gone they are. They don't even bother. They've reached an all-time low when they're completely disinterested in God. And yet God still saves them out of his compassion, out of his love. And with Gideon, we saw that God deserves all the credit for saving Israel. And it's no different in Samson. And Samson prayed to the Lord, O sovereign Lord, remember me, O God. Please strengthen me just once more and let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. Sovereign Lord, remember me, O God. It's all about God. It's God's hand that actually destroys the Philistines. He deserves the credit. With Ehud and Deborah, we saw that God uses unexpected ways and unexpected people and unexpected weapons. And that's what we get in Samson as well. It's totally unexpected. You might think that he's strong and all that sort of stuff, but he's one of the most stupid people that you meet in the book of Judges. He's just so thick. You know the Delilah story. She keeps on asking him, what's the source of your strength? And three times he lies. And yet the lies that he tells, 
That's exactly what happens to him the next day. You know, Delilah does the thing, even the lies that he says. And yet, she asks once again, and he eventually tells the secret. The guy's thick. He's just an idiot. And the surprising thing is, he's smart enough to save Israel. And yet the most unexpected expected thing of all, and the greatest victory that Samson achieves, is actually through his death. Chapter 16, verse 29. Then Samson reached towards the two central pillars on which the temple stood. Bracing himself against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other, Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. Then he pushed with all his might, and down came the temple on the rulers and all the people in it. Thus he killed many more when he, di when he died than when he lived. Who on earth could have predicted that? That's totally unexpected. Who could actually predict that God would save his people from his enemies by the death of his judge? That God could defeat his enemies through the death of a person who's the saviour of his people? The life of this last judge was totally unexpected. And so like last week, we come to the same tune, but it's played in a completely different key. God actually works to fulfil his promises. Those promises that God made to Abraham, God has kept. And God's enemies are no match for him. Absolutely no match. And you see that brilliantly in our Lord Jesus Christ. <coughs> Have a look at that passage down in the bottom of the page, which actually comes from the book of Colossians, chapter 2. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. Having cancelled the written code with all its regulation that was against us, that stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And that's a passage that describes God's power, about God's triumph over the authorities, over the sin and darkness, over Satan himself. And God scoffs them. God pokes his tongue at them. Because on the cross, Jesus achieved the victory over sin. He set us free. Jesus achieved the victory over evil. Death has been defeated. No enemy is too powerful for God. Not even death, not even Satan, not even evil. And like Eglon, those things are held up to ridicule. He triumphs over them. He makes them a public spectacle. And did you notice the unexpected weapon that God uses? A cross. <coughs> a ridiculous thing. By a man dying on a cross, a wooden cross, an instrument of torture, an instrument of execution, and yet the Son of God used it to bring a resounding victory over his enemies. And we see an unexpected Saviour, just like Jael, the wife of Peter. <coughs> Jesus wasn't born a mighty king. He's not important in the world's terms. He's the eldest son of a carpenter, for heaven's sake. He wasn't even a uni student. Born in the back blocks of Galilee. This horrible suburb, really. And, and when he goes home to his hometown, they don't even want to know him. And yet, the victory that he achieved on the cross goes beyond our wildest expectations. The Old Testament judges conquered their enemies through God with ease and they were unexpected people using unexpected names. And what we also know is that it's God's initiative 
and it's God who deserves the credit. And we know that. One of our favourite verses, it says, for it's by grace that you've been saved. Not, not something from yourself, not through faith, not from yourself. It's a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. It's God's work. It's God's initiative. And he's done it. He's achieved this victory. You might be sitting there today, really understanding the evil and suffering, and you really do want to call out for a superhero. And the suffering and the evil is real. You look at Afghanistan, you look at Iraq, you look at Iran, you look at Africa, you look at our own country, you look in your own families and your own life, and it's there. But the story of Judges is that they know that suffering. You see that in Israel in the time of the Judges. 18 years, 10 years, 20 years. There are big times of suffering. And what's more, I didn't say this last week, but the most likely time when they actually wrote this book, when they actually put this book together, was during the time of exile, when Israel was taken to exile in Babylon. Through that situation, they knew what it was like to be suffering, to be under persecution. They knew it. And yet they trusted in God, who sends his superhero. And if you're a Christian person here today, I want you to understand that God is in control, no matter what you see in the world. God knows what he's doing. And if you're not a Christian person here today, I hope that you've actually seen something of the way that God works, something of what God sees as the problem. You might be a person with a great heart, that you do want to see the problems of the world solved. And you might want to be that superhero to fix the world. But the resounding story of the gospel isn't for God so loved the world that he got rid of the VSU. The resounding story of the gospel isn't for God so loved the world that he got rid of workplace agreements. For God so loved the world that he got rid of Tolstra. It doesn't work like that. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That's the judge that we have. A judge who acts by unexpected means, who defeats his enemies with ease. An unexpected person who deserves all the praise and glory. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the story of Judges uh, this week. And Father, thank you so much that in some ways we, once again, come face to face with you and understand the way that you work. And Father, thank you so much that we stand on this side of the cross as we look at the person of Jesus, we actually understand the judges so much better. That we see in him the way that you work. Father, help us to understand that message. Help us to know him more. In Jesus' name.